You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Sure comes the nearest man then, and he starts pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. <laughs> You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore all things weird and bizarre in the natural world and the world past. I'm associate editor Leah Silverman, and today I'm joined by staff writer Marco Margaritoff to discuss the worst maritime disaster in U.S. naval history. The monologue you heard at the top of the show is the notorious ramblings of the fictional Captain Quint below deck in Jaws. But the horror show he regales Officer Brady and Matt Hooper with wasn't just a screenplay. On July 30, 1945, the USS Indianapolis had just completed a top-secret drop-off at Tinian Island in the Philippine Sea. Her crew of 1,195 believed their part in World War II had ended, and now they could return home. But just after midnight, they were torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. The ship exploded, and 300 men went down with it immediately. They were lucky. The remaining 900 were left adrift under an oppressive sun for four days before they were discovered missing. The sailors struggled to avoid hordes of circling sharks as approximately 150 of them were eviscerated. When help finally arrived on August 2nd, only 316 men were left. The USS Indianapolis was an essential battleship for America's involvement in the Pacific Theater. Named after the capital of Indiana, the Navy ordered construction of the vessel in 1929. Initially intended as a light cruiser due to her thin armor, the ship was reclassified as a heavy one after being fitted with a battery of 8-inch guns and 5-inch anti-aircraft guns. The ship was 610 feet long, had 1-inch armor on the deck and sides, and 2 inches of armor on the bulkheads. Even the magazines of the weaponry were armored. All of this weight led the vessel to a stunning water displacement of nearly 13,000 tons once construction by the New York Shipbuilding Corporation in Camden, New Jersey concluded. For eight years, the Indianapolis served as flagship for Scouting Force One, the Navy's official scouting fleet. This group largely consisted of older battleships that operated in the Atlantic, with the Indianapolis a welcome new addition that spearheaded this subdivision moving forward. Her main contributions, of course, came as the United States declared war on both Germany and Japan in 1941. 
It was during increasing tensions in both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans that the Indianapolis was used most significantly, as intended, to protect Allied ships, bombard cities, and keep them under siege and shoot Axis fighter planes out of the sky. Eugene Morgan, Boatswain's mate, second class. All the time, the sharks never let up. We had a cargo net that had styrofoam things attached to keep it afloat. There were about 15 sailors on this, and suddenly, 10 sharks hit it and there was nothing left. This went on and on and on. Before sinking to the depths of the Pacific Ocean mere days before Japan capitulated, the Indianapolis saw a serious amount of action. The vessel served to protect Allied ships and planes during U.S. landings on New Guinea, the raids on Saipan in Japan, the attacks on Tokyo, and was a vital contributor in the 1944 Battle of the Philippine Sea. Perhaps most consequential during this phase of its deployment was the surprise attack on Kiska Island. Extreme visibility issues plagued those planning the strategic surprise attack on the Japanese stronghold. This led to a then-newfound air-to-ship communication approach, in which Allied planes above directed the ship below on how best to attack. In the end, it took 15 minutes for the Japanese to effectively respond, and led America's Defense Department to reassess their naval strategies. It was concluded that taking control of island territories closer to Japan would be vital in more efficient domination of mainland forces. Over the years, the Portland-class heavy cruiser became more and more invaluable to the Navy and its image. It became the flagship for Admiral Raymond Spruance as he commanded the 5th Fleet from 1943 to 1944, and even took President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on a PR campaign across South America. The Good Neighbor trip saw America's highest member of office and six cabinet members travel to Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, and Montevideo. Photographs of this marketing move are still widely available to this day. In the end, of course, it was the last few weeks of World War II that demanded the most of the Indianapolis and its crew. Without their efforts aboard the cruiser, it's arguable that the war would not have ended as it did. Unfortunately for most of the men aboard, they never got to witness the end of the war and the results of their efforts. Granville Crane, Magnus Mate Second Class. Men began drinking salt water so much that they were very delirious. In fact, a lot of them had weapons like knives, and they'd be so crazy that they'd be fighting amongst themselves and killing one another. And then there'd be others that drank so much salt water that they were seeing things. They'd say, the Indies down below, and they're giving out fresh water and food in the galley. And they'd swim down, and a shark would get them. And you could see the sharks eating your comrade. As fears of Nazi Germany's nuclear weapons readiness terrified American intelligence, the Allied superpower set out to get there first. There was no doubt Adolf Hitler would have used the destructive capabilities to continue dominating European territory, with the U.S. naturally next on the list. Fortunately for the United States, the Manhattan Project was a success. Lead scientist Robert Oppenheimer had created the atomic bomb, two to be specific, capable of aerial deployment from a custom-designed plane known as the Enola Gay. In July of 1945, the time came to deliver those weapons as close to Japan as possible. Germany had already been taken by the Soviets, leaving only Japan as a major Axis power to contend with. Steadfast in their decision to keep fighting, it was agreed that an atomic bomb or two would force their hand to cease fire. It would be the first atomic bomb ever used in warfare in the history of the world. The USS Indianapolis was tasked to pick up core components of the ironically named Little Boy in San Francisco 
and bring them to Tinian Island in the Pacific. This ten-day race saw the vessel speed a 5,000-mile distance from California to Tinian from July 16 to July 26, 1945. Those aboard had no idea what they were carrying, and placed bets as to the contents of their mysterious cargo. Coxswain Louis Irwin recalled, Most didn't pay attention at first. It was just the typical loading of supplies with the crane. But we knew something was going on. They had guards on station at all times. Of course, we didn't know what it was, but we knew it was a big deal, and we were glad to get rid of it by the time we reached Tinian. Seaman First Class Clarence Hirschberger recalled, Rumors started flying all over the place. Wagers were being made, and everybody was betting on what that crate contained. They were wagering it was anything from a new type of airplane engine to scented toilet paper for General MacArthur. Needless to say, nobody ever collected a nickel on that bet. While the Indianapolis accomplished its mission, a vital task during a distressing stage of the war, it was the last serious order it ever received. Quote from Don McCall, Seaman Second Class. They tell you to throw your life jacket in first, then jump in and get your life jacket. I looked over at the ship's rail and there was too many guys who didn't have a life jacket. I decided when I got there, I was going to have one. I strapped mine on before jumping overboard and went through the Navy procedure, holding on to my collar when you hit the water. It felt like my legs were going down and my top was going up. When I hit the water, fuel oil and seawater went down my throat. I was gagging and spitting and trying to swim away from the ship. I finally threw up and got rid of most of it, but when I ran out of air, I stopped and looked back at the ship and it was going down. After delivering the atomic bomb components, Captain McVeigh stopped at Guam before being ordered to Leyte in the Philippines. He was told by Commodore James Carter, commander of the Pacific Fleet's advance headquarters, that, quote, things are very quiet and that the Japanese are, quote, on their last legs and there's nothing to worry about. Unfortunately, Lieutenant Commander Mochitsura Hashimoto, captain of Japanese submarine I-58, was fully capable and ready to locate and attack any encroaching enemy ships. To make matters worse, big ships like the Indianapolis didn't have sonar technology and typically used destroyer escorts on long voyages like this 1,200-mile trip from Guam to late. On its own, surrounded by ocean and the elements lurking beneath, the Indianapolis set out. It was after midnight in the early pitch-black hours of July 30th that the attack came. The first torpedo hit the starboard bow of the ship, killing dozens of crewmen in an instant. The second and final hit struck the amidships, igniting a storage tank of 3,500 gallons of aviation fuel. Once those flames spread, all was lost. Explosions tore through the cruiser and sank the gigantic vessel in 12 minutes flat. Taking on massive amounts of water, the ship was swallowed up by the ocean, taking around 300 sailors with her. While 900 men survived the attack, they were left adrift in darkness. To make matters worse, a miscommunication regarding the movement report system led to no emergency response. Nobody knew the ship had been attacked, and it would take four days for people to realize as desperate sailors saw their friends get eaten alive by sharks, or hallucinate so badly that they paddled towards imagined islands on the horizon. Men began drinking salt water. They even started fighting each other, using knives they had on them, some even killing each other. Machinists made second-class Granville Crane said one crewman said that, quote, The India's down below and they're giving out fresh water and food in the galley, and swam down only for a shark to eat him. 
You could see sharks eating your comrade, he said. Finally, on the fourth day, those who survived heard the heartening noise of an Allied plane in the distance. At 11 a.m., a Navy plane flying a routine patrol spotted the survivors and radioed for help. A few hours later, Lieutenant Adrian Marks arrived on a seaplane and dropped rafts and survival gear. When the USS Doyle arrived after midnight, all 317 surviving crewmen of the original 1196 men were taken aboard and rescued. Anywhere between a few dozen and 150 people were torn to shreds by sharks in the days and nights before. It would be another 72 years before anyone located the wreckage of the Indianapolis, bringing much-needed closure for survivors and the families of victims. Paul McGinnis, Signalman 3rd Class. While I was completely coherent, this was my thought. Keep struggling and stay alive. It was very miserable because of the sun burning the skin. One could not escape it. It was like having your head in a hole in the middle of a mirror, with all the sunlight being reflected and burning your face. So hot. It was miserable. Like hell. You couldn't wait for the sun to go down. When the sun went down, it was a relief. Then it would get cold and you would start to shiver and you couldn't wait for the sun to come back up. Besides being the worst wreck in U.S. naval history, the sinking of the Indianapolis was unique for another reason. Of all captains in the history of the United States Navy, Captain Charles B. McVeigh III was and remains the only one to have been court-martialed for losing a ship sunk by an act of war. Because of Navy protocol regarding secret missions, the USS Indianapolis was not reported missing when it failed to dock in Leyta on its scheduled day. Instead, rescue only came when the survivors were spotted by pilots on a routine patrol flight. The Navy itself claimed that the ship's SOS messages were never received because the ship was operating under a policy of radio silence due to the secrecy of its mission. But declassified records showed that the three SOS messages were indeed received. It was just that none of the men who received them acted, because one of them was drunk, Another thought it was a fake-out from the Japanese, and the third had been given orders not to be bothered. Despite these failures on behalf of the United States Navy, McVeigh was court-martialed for failure to avoid the attack. But even in court, it became obvious that McVeigh was not at fault. The Japanese commander who had torpedoed the USS Indianapolis even testified on his behalf, saying that it was not possible for McVeigh to have effectively avoided the attack. Furthermore, given the point in the war... The United States Navy had made the decision not to send the Indianapolis with added protection. The Navy told the USS Indianapolis explicitly that they likely had nothing to worry about on this mission. And this was the basis of McVeigh's defense in court. That the U.S. Navy had been incompetent. That they had not provided him with the escorts and the info necessary to protect his crew. Nonetheless, McVeigh was convicted on a failure to avoid the attack. He never served time but he was stripped of his seniority and reportedly never got over the controversy on a personal level. At the age of 70, he took his own life with his Navy pistol on his front lawn. But in a most unexpected and optimistic twist to this harrowing story, McVeigh was exonerated by the efforts of a sixth grader in 2000. The boy leading the charge was 12-year-old Hunter Scott, who was able to explicitly prove that McVeigh wasn't responsible for the loss of his ship. His efforts caught the attention of the Clinton administration, and Bill Clinton signed McVeigh's exoneration that year. Scott later became a United States naval aviator. Seaman 2nd Class Lowell Dean Cox recalled, 
The big ships like Indianapolis didn't have sonar, and they required some destroyers to be with them. Here we were going from Guam to the Philippines without a destroyer escort. Both Carter and Guam routing assured the captain everything was alright. We left thinking everything was fine. July 30 was a black, dark night, and that submarine skipper, he looked towards the east, and here was a little speck that he recognized as a ship. We were coming right toward him, or fairly close, and he crashed dove, got in position, put his periscope on us, and watched us. It was 2016 when historian for the Naval History and Heritage Command, Richard Halver, came upon records that finally solved the mystery of the Indianapolis's location. He knew that a cargo and troop carrier came upon the ship 11 to 12 hours before it sank, and found a 2015 blog post that helped him put the pieces together. The article, written by the son of a U.S. sailor aboard this troop carrier, led him to peruse the veteran's records and discover he was aboard the LST-779. This led Halver to realize the Indianapolis was actually much further west than the Navy had thought all along. Finally, a year later in August 2017, Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen's USS Indianapolis project located the ship using research vessel Petrel. The wreck, which was found at 18,044 feet, was revealed on live television on September 13th. Due to the great depth in the North Philippine Sea, the vessel was rather well preserved. The bow, which broke off before sinking, was found one and a half miles to the east, while two 8-inch guns were found half a mile east. As for the survivors, only 10 remain alive after its last living officer, Don Howison, died at 90 years old in January of this year. In the end, no amount of commemoration or respect of the men aboard could provide absolute relief for those who survived or their families. Ultimately, besides locating the wreckage, keeping this unbelievable tale of survival cemented in history appears to be all we can do. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call Redacted History. My name is Andre White the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.